You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Now, welcome back to the Batuta Advocate podcast. My name is Wendell Hussey. Errol Parker is sitting alongside me today, and we're doing something a little bit different, I guess, uh, delving into the news cycle. COP27 is uh, just wrapping up over there in Egypt. Uh, Hasn't got a lot of press attention this year, not as much as previous years. Maybe that's to do with our Prime Minister not embarrassing himself uh, or our nation not embarrassing themselves over at the climate uh, conference. So we thought we'd just touch on what's been happening, where's it happened, what are the updates and all that sort of stuff. Errol Parker, we've got Richie Merzian, the Director of Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute, who has dialed very kindly in all the way over from Egypt. And he's going to give us a bit of a rundown on all of that. Richie, how are you going? Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yeah, fair enough. How, how are you feeling about it all? It's, uh, I had low expectations and they've been met. It's always good to manage expectations. That's right. I mean, this, this, I've done, gone to a few of these with different hats on. This one was going to be tough because it had to follow up a pretty solid act, which was last year when the whole world came together to agree on a new big pact to up the ambition on climate and put more money on the table and all those other good stuff. So because Glasgow last year, the last conference was was the high level, the high watermark, mm. this one uh, was always going to be a hard act to follow. Yeah, fair. And so it hasn't quite lived up. It's been a little bit disappointing. That seems to be a lot of the sentiments from around the world, particularly from countries whose, uh, whose very existence is under threat. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's the main topic for this one. It's basically we've really balls up addressing climate change. We haven't done enough to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees, so we're going to hit it, and that's going to be devastating for our neighbours. So in addition to reducing emissions and then trying to build up our adaptation, you know, sea walls and trying to adapt, is there going to be compensation? Is there going to be a compo fund for all these countries that are getting smashed by climate impacts? That's the main topic, and the answer is no, there won't be. Uh, and I think that's going to disappoint many people. So what has made this conference uh, disappointing as opposed to previous ones? Is it just, you know, through like a general apathy towards, you know, this impending doom that's going to be causing our children and grandchildren a whole world of grief? Yeah, look, I think there's just a certain level of unfairness to this all, right? There's a bunch of countries that have benefited from industrialization, that are big polluters, that are major exporters of the problem and therefore making a lot of cash, a lot of dosh from it. And, you know, look, talking about Australia as one of many here, and that they're not necessarily willing to put money on the table to help those who haven't caused this problem but are getting the full brunt of the impacts. So it's that level of unfairness that it's just really hard to measure because in the UN system, especially in this one, all decisions are by consensus. So, you know, there's 190 plus countries that all have to agree on everything. So if you've got one problem, that's it. It can derail it. So you've got this common denominator that's always low. And when you have a big, important meeting like Glasgow, all the leaders come and the peer pressure kind of builds it up a bit. But with this one, you just didn't have the same momentum. And 
And also, like this this town that I'm in, Sharm El Sheikh, is a bit of a weird one as well. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about the hosting in Sharm El Sheikh. But why didn't the leaders make the trip out there this time? I know Albo copped a bit of flack for not heading over there. He sent Chris Bowen over, um, who yeah gave an address where he took down the World Bank, but didn't seem to talk too much about what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. But just firstly, why don't you reckon the leaders made it over there? Was it just like oh we did it last year, so we'll just leave it at that? You know, in Albo's defence, it wasn't supposed to be a leaders-level meeting. It was just supposed to be that whoever's responsible for it should go there and help sort it out. But, you know, the, the Egyptians got all excited. They're like, oh, we want leaders too. And so they invited all the leaders anyway to this mismatch where you had leaders come and then you didn't really have an agenda for them to deliver in the same way. And you didn't, you hadn't done the heavy lifting, so everyone was in the spot where they could agree on it as well. So... This mismatch didn't really work, but I have to say, in their defense, it was useful hearing from some leaders because they said, look, we've just had this massive energy crisis. Energy prices are through the roof. You know, we've got this war in the Ukraine. There's this tension between US and China, the two biggest emitters. So they're not really talking anymore. So things have gotten harder, not better in the last 12 months, but and this is what like France and the UK and even Italy were saying, we're still going to stick to the long-term goal. We're still going to try and do what we can in the long-term, get to net zero, but in the meantime, it's going to be a bit choppy as we just make sure we, we, we provide the energy we need and however we need to do it. Yeah, it was interesting for you to mention uh, that, that two of our largest emitters on Earth aren't really open to opening up their books and sort of uh, getting on the same page as the rest of us. What type of impact could the rest of the world have on climate change if the big two aren't going to come to the table? Yeah, it's a much tougher ask. I mean, one of the big things in Glasgow that was successful was that you had this surprise agreement that China and the US had stitched up where they planned to cooperate on climate solutions and saw this as an opportunity to build bridges and rah, rah, rah. And that really helped kick things along. Um, but ever since Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, the Chinese have been pissed off at the Americans and they stopped their cooperation on this. It might patch up in a couple of days. I think Biden is meeting with or, or did meet with Xi Jinping. So hopefully things are a bit better. You know, they've made up and kissed and maybe they'll do a bit more cooperation. But it it makes it much harder. Yeah, it's almost like Taiwan just might have to take one for the team. And, uh, you know, for the rest of the planet to <laughs> just keep those microchips coming. Yep. You mentioned there the targets that people are still trying to push uh, ahead to. I noticed that there's been a fair bit of chat about that 1.5 degree of warming target, which is we want to try and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Don't want it to go any higher than that for obvious reasons. But I noticed there's been a just a bit of chat across a few days there of the conference of people just going, well, maybe maybe we can't actually commit to that. We're, we're going to go past that. Um, it's pretty much inevitable and maybe that was an unrealistic target and we should just move on and lower ex- our expectations a little bit more. That's so soft. It, it's such a cop-out. Like, you know, the whole point of having an ambitious goal is that, you know, it's ambitious. And for some of these countries, 1.5 is just devastating, you know, like... And you know what's going to happen, right? The ones who, who don't want to take climate action, the ones who are very happy with us just continually being fueled by fossil fuels, they're going to take that and be like, well, see, there's evidence that, you know, it's just going to be a bit too hard and we should just open up a few more mines or crack open some more gas. So that's the problem, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's good to see that there was this vanguard pushing against it. 
I mean, it, like, you know, the, the Pacific Island nations say we need 1.5 to survive. And it's pretty hard to backtrack from that, even if you are struggling to meet it. Yeah, I noticed, I think it was the Prime Minister of uh, Antigua who was saying 1.5 to survive, and we're actually not that keen on just relocating our entire nation somewhere because, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to do all that? Another thing I noticed that had been on the agenda was calls for compensation and for the likes of the big two that Errol Parker just mentioned to basically open up the checkbook and start writing out some checks. That seems extremely unlikely. Is that the case? Oh, yeah, mate, totally. It, that's... I had to do the negotiations for this for Australia about 10 years ago, like sitting in the room and, and managing this issue. And at the end of the day, developed countries don't want to be liable. Mm. So like they just don't want to, just like your employee doesn't want to be liable if you trip and fall, you know. And, then, and also like the compensation will be endless. Like you just think about how smashed Australia's got in the last couple of years from these supercharged climate impacts like the black summer bushfires or the floods or the drought. And then you think about that times everyone else. Yeah, I know. Well, it is interesting how, you know, there is that uh, that argument that Australians especially, they make up such a tiny, tiny fraction of 1% of all the emissions on Earth. But per capita, we export the most what impact do you think it would have if Australia moved away from a policy to really to extract things like coal and gas and put them on a ship and then they're no longer our problem? If, if we stop doing that, what type of impact could we see? A big impact. It's the drug dealer's defence, right? Like, I'm not responsible for who uses my drugs, but I do want to sell a lot more of them. Someone yeah. else will do it, you know? If you pull out, someone else will do it. That's right. Um and it will have a major impact if Australia stops. Put it like this. We crunched some numbers at the Australians too. And we said, well, who's the biggest exporter of fossil fuels? When we added it all up and compared the countries, it was Russia, Saudi Arabia, then Australia. So Australia gets a podium place when it comes to dealing fossil fuels to the world, when it comes to selling the problem. And so not only is this an example of what Australia is doing now, they have over 100 new projects in the pipeline, over 70 coal, over 40 gas that it wants to open up. When you add up the emissions from those, that's like opening up 200 new coal-fired power stations. So we don't even have a policy to stop opening up new ones, let alone dealing with our existing ones. And if we have a net zero policy, which we do, and we legislate it, and the places we sell this stuff to, China, Japan, Korea, all have net zero policies, then we need to come up with a plan to stop growing the problem. And that's the real opportunity for Australia. How feasible is that? I know we like we hear in the yeah. news cycle, no new coal projects, no new gas projects, no new oil projects in Australia. How actually feasible is that? If we were to put a stop like, on that and go, righto, from tomorrow, no more are approved, what would be the fallout and how would that actually work? It, mate, it's entirely feasible. I mean, this, this, this is the other thing. We've just had the wool pulled over our eyes when it comes to our fossil fuels, right? We don't make much money from it. As a, as the government doesn't rake in much by way of tax. They don't employ many Australians directly. So you can have a, a transition plan for those. who. Are, I mean, there's more people working at McDonald's than working in the coal and gas industry directly. Not many at McDonald's on 180k a year. No, but we, but we can basically have a transition plan. If you go and you go to a coal, you know, and we're talking here as well, and this is what you often hear, 
oh, you know, what are we going to do about these workers? But we're saying don't grow new mines and don't grow the problem by having new mines and new gas fields, right? Like we're just putting ourselves in a, in a further situation. The other thing is most Australians think this is a really big thing, right? Like if we ask in, in our Climate of the Nation, which is our annual survey, how big do you think the coal industry is? How many people do you think are employed in it? How big do you think the gas industry is? And people get it wrong by a factor, just pulling up the exact number here, but it's a huge factor, like a factor of 10, 20, 30, in terms of how, how they get it wrong. I would be expecting that the profits that this country make from, you know, exporting fossil fuels would that would work to significantly underpin all the nice things that this country has, like universal healthcare, education, the NDIS. That's what you'd think, right? But but that's that's because that's what you've been told for decades. I mean, like the states themselves often make more from car rego than they do from the royalties of minings. And if you look at what the federal government's made, just look at corporate income tax from the five five major gas producers made over a hundred billion in the last seven years and paid zero in corporate yeah. tax. You pay more tax than they do, right? This is the thing. We don't make that much money from all the coal and gas. They're big industries, but the money doesn't flow here and they're mainly multinationals. So there's no mum and dads holding onto those shares behind the scenes. They're mainly multinationals as well. So they keep most of the money. There's very few Australians directly employed in it. There's very few Australians that actually own or own a piece of this. Yeah. And so here we are protecting an industry that's killing our planet while we don't make much from it. For those people who are employed in, in these industries, they are terrified, rightly so, that if this comes to a close, their high-paid jobs are going to come to a close there. And there's been a lot of talk about helping these people transition into new roles what would these new roles be? I mean, everyone says, you know, oh, you know, they would be going into into installing and maintaining a solar farm. But, you know, to drive around in an air-conditioned land cruiser around a gas field is a lot easier than having to hop out and squeegee a thousand solar panels every day. Yeah, it's true. It's a lot of squeegeeing. <laughs> um, look, these jobs can be anything. Right, like it's not just that you're going to stop that job and then you're going to do this job over here. There's all the jobs in the middle. But if you do take, say, a core mining site that's going to close down, and a lot of these communities know that it's inevitable that this is going to happen, just like coal-fired power station workers. And so the key is having a plan, like pretending like shit's not going to change, just putting your head in the ground is just a recipe for disruption and disaster. So having a plan doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you know, like that you're copping out. It just means that you're planning for people's well-being. Um, and the other thing is, if say you do take a coal mine, more often than not, there's a huge amount of jobs in decommissioning, well-paid jobs in decommissioning. Basically, like these sites are wrecked, it's packing it down. So you take the workforce of a coal mine. About a third could get the jobs for decommissioning. About a third would probably retire because the workforce is actually more on the older side rather than the younger. Um, and then a third are going to go off and find other jobs. And those other jobs could be in anything. You know, there's a lot of mining jobs in the new minerals that we need to make batteries and stuff. There's offshore wind now that's going to be picking up that needs a lot of people who know how to do offshore gas. Like there's all these other jobs that are out there. But we're missing the plan to transition. And without that, we're just, we're just waiting for the world to decide what we do rather than taking that up ourselves. Yeah. How much of it do you think is to do with really like the age of the 
electorate in that we've had a generation that's that, that's really not had to bend or waver for anything really i mean they're coming to the end of their working life and they're being told that these goalposts are going to move like how electable is a government that's working on the mandate of that everything is going to change well i mean the last government was pretty frank like chris <laughs> bowen said we're never going to build a coal-fired power station again we're going to have to transition and we're going to have to you know have a stronger target and we're going to have to lock in net zero so you can start making that pathway but i guess leadership is taking people with you that's the question we have for this government and we put it to them constantly like if you ask him well what's going to happen with coal and gas mines and he'll say well you know the market economics are this and that and that's not leadership like, and you're not going to rely on the market entirely. I mean, they're the ones who kind of got us into this mess. We have an opportunity to reinvent Australia because right now the whole world knows this is a giant quarry. You know, and we come here and we boost fossil fuels um, and we act like, like bandits. Um, and so this is an opportunity for us to reinvent ourselves beyond just fossil fuels. How are we perceived over there? Has there been any change over the last... Uh, last year or so, or is it more so the international community is just like change of government, but things still remain the same there? It's nice to see a change of government and they're not actively denying that climate change is a thing and refusing to um, have any targets. Or, you know, are they are they just like, well, not too much has changed really? Yeah. In terms of the rhetoric, in terms of the level of engagement and the the goodwill, it's certainly there. I mean, last year CNN was saying, you know, Australia's the villain of the climate negotiations. So, like, they're coming here with, with better energy and with a new government and with more of a plan to change things at, at home. And that's being well received. So, like, that's a good thing. They have an Australian pavilion, you know, flying the green and gold. And they're putting on events with all their renewable companies and other stuff like that. And that's good, you know. But at the same time, last, yesterday there was a ranking of all the major emitters, about 60 of them. Australia was at the bottom. Australia was dead last. And now it's gone up maybe four places. So it's still in the bottom 10. Up four places, though, you know, trending upwards. It's a real, it's a real rebuild of a, of a club, you know, maybe pushing for top eight in the next kind of few years. We're building the foundations. Are we spruiking any of the things like clean coal and renewable gas over there? Or is that just something that we kind of hear in uh, marketing spins back home? Yeah, no. Look, as far as I can tell, that's not being spruiked here, um, which is a good thing. That was certainly well, what the last, the last crew, what Morrison was doing when he rolled out a big Santos carbon capture and storage display at the Australian Pavilion. It said, who wants more gas? So this, this group are attuned to the fact that this is actually about legitimate climate solutions and that's what they're displaying and that's good. You know, I've got friends who work in renewables who are here. You know, I've got uh, um, some Indigenous mates who run like clean energy networks who are here. So they've brought good people to show a different side of Australia and that's welcome. But there is still this outstanding question of, well, is this just an, an exceptional part of the cycle? Because they know that Australia changes, gets a little bit better and then goes back to being crap again. And I think that's what everyone's holding out for. Is this just an exceptional kind of blip in the Australian? Because there's been 30 years of this. And for 30 years, Australia's pretty much promoted fossil fuels and didn't want to take anything on that was at its expense. And so I guess everyone's a bit cautious. They're saying, great, you changed your government. 
now have some policies that actually have an impact so that when we measure how things are actually tracking, then they're tracking in the right direction. Until then, you're still going to hover at the bottom. And also, you need a plan for your fossil fuels. I've noticed in recent years that uh, a lot of the old conservative coal warriors in this country are starting to bang on about nuclear power. How is the concept of nuclear power received inside the walls of COP? Well, basically, the nuclear industry aren't cool. They thought, they thought that that would be the technology that would change the world, and it hasn't. And so they hire all these young people to walk around in blue shirts talking about how cool nuclear is at all the stores. They're kind of like the weird sort of Jehovah's Witness who come knocking on the doors, and they organize like flash dances. And it just, it, it's just awkward, actually, talking to the nuclear people because it's the only technology that just gets more and more expensive. Like, it's just, it's just an inappropriate solution in Australia. We don't have it. It would take two decades. It's uninsurable. Use a lot of water. It just doesn't make sense. Richie, we just mentioned there before about um, clean coal. That we used to hear a bit about that, and we still hear about that. The one that has been creeping in lately is the use of the word like renewable gas. People are talking about gas being renewable, which sounds like an oxymoron because well, it isn't renewable, is it? It comes out of the ground, and once we're out, that's it. Every eighty million years, I guess it would be. Uh, Depends what your goalposts are, I guess. Somewhat renewable. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it doesn't make sense. Like, fossil fuels, you take them and you burn them, and then they have emissions. And the only way you could potentially pretend to clean that up is if you buried some of the emissions underground. And the, high, the whole idea of carbon capture and storage, right, like burying emissions underground, that technology came from the oil industry. What they, what they do is they'd tap their oil wells and then they'd, it, they'd, the pressure would reduce and they'd be somewhat depleted, but there'd still be some, some oil in there. So they'd push down CO2 into the ground and it would push up more, in, more oil. So it's called enhanced oil recovery. That's how carbon capture and storage started. So all they're doing now <laughs> is they're just putting a plug in at the end. That's, that's the technology. And so 75% of all those carbon capture and storage projects around the world are for enhanced oil recovery. So you could end up with more emissions than what you started because you burn that oil and, and it's, you know, so this whole idea that you can somehow keep using fossil fuels because you do this carbon capture and storage or you call it renewables or you buy some dodgy carbon credits to go with it, it's all just bollocks, mm. you know? It's all just the fossil fuel industry saying, no, nah, no, nah, we can do it. We can make it still work. We can clean our stuff up. Just trust us because you can trust us. Sounds like the introduction of um, those cool new electronic cigarettes that taste like lychees and watermelon. Developed by the uh, the oil and the fossil fuel industries, carbon capture and storage. I also wanted to ask you about um, Sharm El Sheikh as a location. Just looking through some of the photos and stuff, seemed like it could be a set for season three of, say, something like White Lotus. You know, it looks marvellous there. It looks really, really good. Also, it looks quite far away from anywhere what have you made of uh, a bunch of dignitaries being hosted out at this glorious uh, resort town in the middle of kind of nowhere in Egypt? Like, it's, just, it's a weird place, mate. Like there's just desert, desert, desert everywhere and then water and that's it. Like it's, it's this kind of weird, weird, weird joint. Um, and also like they just didn't have the facilities to put this on. So all the... the actual venue where we spend most of our time they're all just popped up massive temporary air-conditioned venues 
Um, so you're like, we've come to the middle of the desert and then you just kind of pop up this stuff that's all completely unsustainable. It, it, just, it just kind of feeds into how silly some of this stuff can be. Timed it perfectly with a Guitar World Cup, haven't they? Yeah, yeah I, I know. Well, hopefully uh, the people at COP aren't too susceptible to the same things that FIFA are. But one thing I wanted to ask is that if, if we could have the perfect COP conference, where do you think it would be? Obviously somewhere where it's, you know, on the coalface of climate change, wherever that may be. Look, I mean, uh, having stayed in many crappy places where all the cops have been hosted and I've been to, this is my 10th, I think. Like, you just want somewhere that has decent food, decent place to stay and like good facilities so that you can actually have proper discussions. It's like build a permanent venue and then just keep having it there rather than just keep trying to rotate it through all these different places. Like, I've been to three Polish cops. They've all been in different places. Like, two of them were in call towns. And so you this weird kind of setting. It just, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of novel and it's kind of fun for a bit. And then you realize, actually, nah, it's pretty unsustainable. So if we have it here, you wouldn't recommend putting it in somewhere like Byron Bay? Well, look, you could. I mean, I think it's probably going to be somewhere that can actually comfortably accommodate, you know, upwards of 30,000 people. Yeah. You'd need to have flights and you need to have the conference center and everything. So, I don't know. I haven't spent that much time in Byron. Maybe you guys can tell me. Well, I'd, I'd say, you know, the answer is obviously Newcastle. I mean, it's the world's largest coal port, isn't it? It would be a great place to have it. Or Gladstone. I've heard people talk Gladstone. Big, big call it a big, big gas exporting town as well. Yeah, but you would, you would struggle to have three hundred people in Gladi as opposed to thirty thousand. If you think that uh, the state of the accommodation in uh, Egypt is uh, a bit on the nose, then I guess coming to Gladstone too, especially in the wet, I think that would uh, sort the wheat from the climate chaff. That would, <laughs> oh mate, that's, that's disappointing to hear, mate. It be, look, it'll probably be in one of our big cities. Uh, look, the the, gov- the government wants to co-host with the Pacific, so it'd probably be somewhere on the Pacific Ocean. So you'd be looking at Sydney or Brisbane, I reckon. I mean, Adelaide would put up a good fight because it's got a good story to tell. You know, haven't tried to transition the entire state onto renewables, but it'd probably be one of those one of those big cities there. And then there'll be a couple of pre meetings in the Pacific itself, which will be good because it'd be good to bring the whole world there to see for themselves what our neighbours are up to and and, and what the, those challenges look like just to kind of summarize um the last couple of weeks there in sharm el sheikh the lovely resort town do you hold a lot of hope for the next couple of cops you said there was a lot of hope out of the glasgow summit last year um and there'll be more of these cops coming it's been running for 20 or 30 years they'll keep it going do you hold a lot of hope for next year and the years on? Do you think we can get some more progress going or is it maybe going to be a little bit stalled like it was this year with you know 600 or so fossil fuel lobbyists around and dignitaries flying into a nice place and talking to each other for a couple of weeks? Yeah, look, I have hope. I have hope because having been to many of these conferences, you see the ups and downs. And even if you have a crappy cop every now and then, there is progress. And look, even just between last year and this year, and you can't say that the international system didn't have an impact on Australia's election. Like Morrison coming and being shamed, you know, and being dragged over, and for Australia just constantly ranking at the bottom, 
Um, and for every, you know, for Biden and and Boris just telling Australia to pull its socks up, like that has an impact. Mm. It just slowly, slowly just chips away and gets everyone across the line. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for Australia to do the same thing. And it's great that it's finally putting its hand up to host. It's an opportunity for Australia to reinvent itself beyond fossil fuels. And I think if it takes it seriously, we could get a lot of progress back home. Nice. Hopefully maybe a bit more embarrassment then, if that's what we need. Maybe we need to be embarrassed for the next couple of years leading into each cop and hopefully they'll have some impact back here at home. Richie Mersian, thanks very much for joining us all the way from Egypt. Really appreciate it. Fly home safe and uh, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure, guys.